Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. everyone thanks so much for joining us for a live recording of the new statesman podcast i'm anusha kellyan and i'm joined by my colleagues stephen bush and patrick mcguire so should we just start off stephen and patrick by having a quick chat about what's been going on over the weekend because it's been a really busy time in politics yes it has been it was i had my first um kind of disassociated Westminster hour, which is particularly nerve wracking because usually, you know, then Carolyn Quinn will politely gong you off if you're running over time, but there is no one to gong you off. So you're just like, oh God, am I just going to be that guy who causes the pips not to happen on Radio 4 for the first time since World War II? And the slightly weird thing about it was usually there's kind of like, oh, there's one, there's one breaking news story. But within the last 48 hours, we've had Boris Johnson being admitted to hospital with his condition obviously being more serious than we were led to believe. We've had the resignation of the chief medical officer in the Scottish government after it emerged that she had visited her. It's one of those stories which I can't help laughing at, even though it's not actually funny. And I then oscillate wildly between like feeling quite anxious about it because I think, oh God, how would you react if you had, had done something quite this stupid? So she went to her second home, not once, but twice after telling people to avoid unnecessary travel. So obviously this has annoyed quite a lot of people in Scotland, so she's had to resign. And then the Queen made her sort of first sort of statement about, you know, a national issue beyond, you know, like we like charity and um, these kids who saved a dog from a fire, great, to talk about coronavirus. I think that's everything. Have I missed something? I feel I've missed something obvious. You've missed the, the, the new great leader of the Labour Party, Stephen. Oh, yes. Sorry. I, yeah, I've missed our, our new, our glorious Keir Starmer overlords. <laughs> but that just shows, it really does illustrate what a packed weekend it was, if that's the like, um, afterthought. Yeah, it feels like Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party about, about a month ago, and it was two days ago. That's how, that's how slowly time passes, or quickly time passes. The, the strangest thing about being a journalist in this time is that there's so much to write about. There's so many stories, and time seems to go so fast, but you're actually not really doing very much you're not going out reporting you're not going and meeting people you guys aren't going to parliament anymore you're just kind of sitting in your bedroom while it all happens yeah I mean I, I obviously so I, I vary between the so uh, actually I'm, I'm doing this from from the bedroom because my partner has a, a work call where she needs to have like video and our curtains in here are not particularly work friendly it is really weird 
partly also I realise so much of how I apologise to MPs when I write something they think is unfair is to offer to take them for lunch. And now when they're like, I think this is unfair, I'm just like, Zoom call? The Zoom is on me. Are you something wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you buy someone a takeaway remotely and watch them eat it via Zoom. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it's, the dream. It's, it's very strange because I feel like in an odd way, obviously most journalists start out in local journalism. And in a way, we've all become local journalists again. Because although we're covering national politics, the only thing that you can reliably see and draw conclusions on is your own neighbourhood. And then you can hopefully try and ground that in something in, in sort of national data. But I don't know if the two of you are finding that slightly weird, but it's slightly strange because I do suddenly feel almost like the only thing I feel able to talk about confidently is events in N16. Yeah, the only thing I I feel able to talk about confidently is where AJP Taylor used to live. And I've just been caning the notable residents of Southport Wikipedia page and doing some very creative Googling and some probably quite worrying photography of nondescript residential property. So if anyone has seen a, a large boy take a picture of your house in the Burtdale area, it's because a famous historian used to live there. I completely agree. I've been sort of on my state-sanctioned exercise and walks during the weekend. And you do see a real contrast in the sort of national coverage and what you see locally. So a lot of articles, particularly with sort of cleverly cropped pictures and people photographed at ambiguous angles were run in places like the sun over the weekend. But actually the contrast of those articles suggesting that people were flouting the, the social distancing rules with with what public space looked like in my area was, was really striking. Yeah, I think the, uh, when I look at kind of photos of, so London Fields was one of the places which was allegedly very full. And when I, when I compare my lived actual experience of parks in Hackney with photos I've seen of parks in Hackney, let alone, and seeing as, let's face it, right, there's the same combination of a long-term Indigenous working class community of, of various colours, a bunch of creatives who've moved in relatively recently, a bunch of people like me who are creatives who've moved back home again, as it were, and then, I don't know who else lives in East London, but, but broadly, right, essentially, in all three of three of those boroughs, you have exactly the same types of people. And so I find it impossible to reconcile this image being painted in the media and by some overly censorious councils that somehow 10 minutes down the road, there are people who are just kind of park, you know, running into parks, sunbathing, acting as if nothing has changed. Yeah, and I think it's interesting the way that the government has approached that as well, because you have Matt Hancock sort of veering between the tough guy, oh, we'll have to sort of tighten up measures unless you guys comply with our rules, versus every press conference saying, well, the vast majority of people are actually, you know, obeying the social distancing guidelines and now backed up by these charts that they put on the screen and that are presented by the medical experts and then saying, well, actually, we don't have any plans to, to tighten up measures because most people are obeying. So I think it's almost a sort of the government can't quite decide where it sits, whether it wants to distract people with sort of public shaming or whether it wants to tell you the actual facts, which you know are hard to avoid when they're putting them in charts at the press conferences. It does sort of raise the question of what, what is the point of, you know, Robert Jenrick wagging his finger at, at 10 past eight in the morning and then being completely contradicted in seven hours time. I, do, I still haven't really got my head around what the, the intervening period is meant to, meant to achieve. I, what? I think it's the, isn't the, the, the finger wagging is communication for us, for journalists, right? Because for reasons that I find I do not fully understand, a large chunk of the media has decided that the big thing it wants to campaign for in this period is for us to be locked up in our flats which obviously I take incredibly personally. But 
and all of the evidence of like both advertising and behavioral science and yeah, actually this is one of the parts of behavioral science which is replicable isn't if you say everyone else is having a magnum with flakes it's been so long since i had ice cream i don't actually know what the magnum flavors are anymore you'd, you'd have to go, take oh, a bite out of the magnum and then put yeah, the flake in yeah and people kind of go oh yeah i'd love a magnum whereas if you go you know loads of people are rejecting magnum because actually the ice cream kind of tastes kind of weird and the chocolate's not very good people are like oh well maybe i won't too and this is the slight weirdness and you basically have the bit when the government is communicating with the voters when they rightly go look most people are doing this well done you just have to keep doing it which is an effective way of getting people to socially distance and then you have the like a journalist has said but aren't these people wicked and deserving of the jack boot and they go oh yes and then maybe the boot will come out next week despite the fact that we know that saying to than saying to people that lots of people aren't following the rules makes more people not follow the rules because the taboo around it is broken. And I mean, it feels like that old joke of Alan Blinder, the uh, Princeton economist and economists that they're most influential when, um, when they're most divided and they're least influential when they basically agree on everything. And it's slightly weird because this is an area in which like essentially everyone, you know, psychologists, advertisers, behavioral scientists, they all basically go know that it is not effective to go, some people are breaking the rules to get people to follow them. And yet the government, it feels like is so, its default setting is to go, you are right to think this, you know, you are right to think that the NHS can so can slowly be made better by putting money on the deserving and the core NHS without any money for, you know, bureaucrats or feckless local councils or whatever. The moment it's confronted with a situation where it feels it has to go, but you're not right. Most people are following the rules. It kind of sort of goes like, maybe we'll do both messages. I think that almost extends. So, of course, there was that extraordinary story that you mentioned in Scotland with the chief medical officer, Catherine Calderwood, visiting her second home, which, of course, directly sort of contradicted her own advice. But then also with the story that we have in England, and of course, across the country of Boris Johnson now being in hospital, I find that is also quite confusing because he, you know, is still leading. He's, they're saying that he's still doing his work and running the country. But the first rule on the NHS website for, you know, approaching uh, your coronavirus symptoms is to rest and to sleep. I think that's quite confusing in itself. You know, as, as someone who had a deeply unhealthy working relationship with my work, even before I was locked in a small flat with nothing else to do but work, it's one of those weird things where I completely identify with the like, I can still work, I'm fine. But every time I have gone, I can still work, I'm fine. Uh, I look back through my copy and it's just like, wow, was I drunk when I wrote this? And I think, so I, I can, yeah, I think A, it's confusing, but it's one of those things where I'm sure he does believe that he can continue to do the job or maybe he doesn't believe it and they think that they just don't want to panic people by saying that actually Dom Rob is now running the show. But I, I just think it, A, is confusing. And if he believes it, well, like, people believe they're healthy to work when they're not all the time and they are pretty much always wrong. Okay, so we're going to go to our first question now, and that's a question from Matthew Edwards. So, Matthew, would you like to read out your question? Hi. Are you surprised by any omissions from the Shadow Cabinet, for example, Yvette Cooper or Jess Phillips? On the specific omissions you raise, the short answer is no, for two distinct reasons. On Yvette Cooper, as much as I am not of the opinion that sort of mic-dropping, infinitely clippable really sort of pugnacious select committee chairs ostentatiously confrontational in in terms of you know you know you won't believe how this sort of lit put down that Yvette Cooper just um just doled out to Caroline Noakes or whatever regardless of my um aversion to that sort of select committee chair Yvette Cooper is effective in her brief and you know given that 
they're no longer a million miles away from Labour leadership. They're not going. They're not. That can be another arm of Starmer's op- opposition operation, right? Uh, you know, ditto Meg Hillier. Rachel Reeves is a notable exception in that she's come inside the tent. Her talents as a sort of scrutineer are probably better served shadowing Gove than they are socking it to Alok Sharma. The second answer to your question is that Jess Phillips proved that she's not cut out to be on the front bench over the course of her short leadership campaign. And to sort of add a third leg to the answer, am I surprised at any other omissions? Mm. Given that Starmer sort of values loyalty, it's quite surprising not to see the people who served under him in the shadow Brexit team for three years get the nod. Matthew Pennycook, a member of the intakes, you know, very much from the middle of the party, 2015 intake, tipped to get somebody over the weekend, Brexit-facing. It's quite surprising that people like him haven't been promoted. Ditto Sarah Jones, highly rated MP for Croydon, although she's very effective in shadow housing, and that's a big job. So to answer your actual question, not a massive surprise, but there are some big surprises around the fringe of the PLP. Yes, I think I was surprised by a couple of things. One, because it's odd, because one of the things, and if you spoke to Labour MPs a couple of days ago, they would have said one of their concerns about their looming overlord was that he would be vengeful. And this is a, although he has rewarded a lot of loyalists and, you know, people who've clashed with him over Brexit or who suggested he was funded by dark money, you know, have been fired. This is still a reshuffle in which Lisa Nandy is Shadow Foreign Secretary, I worry that we should start renaming ourselves the New Statesman podcast featuring an obligatory mention every week for Lou Haig. But Lou Haig is Northern Ireland Secretary. And, and to be blunt, the only reason why she has the word interim there is because quite rightly, now that Tony Lloyd has, has, has a serious case of COVID-19, no one wants to be the person to go, by the way, I'm also sacking you. But I think it seems reasonable to suppose that Louise Haig will be there in that post for some time and will continue to be in the shadow cabinet. So I was surprised by the relative generosity towards his rivals. I think the interesting thing in terms of those two specific names, so I have a slightly more favourable impression of Jess than Patrick does. Uh, I think she illustrated, as Corbyn himself did in those first four months when he had to step up from being from never having been to the dispatch box to being leader of the opposition, she, she provided a good illustration in that, campaign, in that campaign that politics is difficult. And one of the things I think is going to be a bit of a culture shock to a lot of people on the Labour right now that they are um, not back in control, but now that they are back in a position of influence, is I think some of them have this kind of idea of, well, if I was in Labour politics, I would simply be, be, a, be an effective opposition. And that actually is more difficult than, than it's commonly supposed. But she also is someone who's never been on the front bench before. And with the partial exception of Bridget Phillipson, who's only ever been a whip, the way that this front bench team has really gone back to the pre-2015 Labour Party is that these people are all relatively experienced. They've all been on the front bench before. They all have some experience of doing that bit of opposition. And my suspicion is probably people like, say, on the right of the party, like West Streeting or Jess Phillips. I think I will only think they've been overlooked if they aren't in tomorrow's appointments, which will be when uh, Keir brings in people who have never held front bench positions before. Yeah, and it's not necessarily an insult, right, to be more suited to the back benches. Jess Phillips has been particularly good on the domestic violence stories that have emerged during the coronavirus outbreak. Um, she's been, you know, on out there on the airwaves talking about this, feeding back from, from the frontline workers who she's spoken to and has been sort of leading on that story. So, you know, although her leadership campaign suggested that she didn't have that experience for sort of frontline shadow cabinet level politics she she is still a particularly effective backbencher on the issues that she's strong on and you need that in an opposition party
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, we're going to go to the next question, which is from Martha O'Neill. So I was just wondering what you guys thought that the pandemic has taught us about the successes and weaknesses of devolution and kind of as an extension of that, do we think that the pandemic has perhaps offered an opportunity for Vaughan Gassing to introduce himself as the anointed successor of Mark Drakeford? So, so just to, before we head over uh, Office Dyke, just to briefly cover Northern Ireland, as is my constitutional role on this, on, on this podcast. The interesting question, I guess it's too early to tell what it tells us about how effective the devolution settlement in Northern Ireland has been or rather how effective this new iteration of it is because even before this pandemic Sinn Féin and the DUP have been doing a lot more constructive disagreement so for instance for the first time ever they were asked a parliamentary question about abortion the first and deputy first minister's office and they replied um, with a joint answer that said we don't have an agreed position on this issue which is itself, you know, uh, something of a watershed. But since then, uh, since then, Michelle O'Neill has been really stressing how much she disagrees with the DUP and really strikingly with Robin Swan, uh, the UUP health minister. The UUP was sort of stiffed in the allocation of ministries because everybody expected the DUP to take health. But the UUP uh, were handed the trickiest brief given the state of the health service in Northern Ireland. And now poor Robin Swan is having to deal with a pandemic. And Michelle O'Neill has been really publicly critical of uh, Robin Swan's handling of this whole episode, blaming him for everything from the lockdown strategy to uh, shortage of PPE, etc. So I guess it's too early to tell in Northern Ireland whether this is continuing in the spirit of constructive disagreement, doesn't feel particularly constructive at the moment, or whether it's a period of instability that portends once slash if this is all over, another inevitable collapse into into you know a dead end of... Uh, of rancor rather than the collaborative government that they at least pretended to want to uh, be going into in uh, January. So one of the interesting things about this period, right, is with the exception of Northern Ireland, where it has been significantly more fraught, despite the fact that Scotland is run by an SNP minority government, which quite literally its big political priority is to break out of this political arrangement. Wales is run by Welsh Labour, Welsh Liberal Democrat coalition. It's not technically a coalition because you have to have three MPs to be a for a proper group, and they only have one in the Welsh Liberal Democrats. But it's a coalition in every in every term that we've recognised, and a Conservative majority government. And you know, in January, I I, um, I was speaking to Mark Drake. One of the things he says, well, look, this is an existential challenge for devolution. This is the first time since devolution there has been a proper Conservative majority in Westminster, and we don't know how that will work. And surprisingly, those five different political parties have worked together quite well, right? They've, they've sung from the same hymn sheet, they've, including a period when the medical advice was something that was, you know, at odds with the international consensus on how to tackle that. Now, but the question there is, is, is that a sign of devolution working well in, the, in a crisis, despite those different political outlooks, you didn't have confusing medical advice, you had, you know, very sensible media cooperation to allow um, the first ministers to give their messages to their audience before the prime minister arrives and then you know swamps all of the oxygen from it because the media is so England-centric. Is that an unalloyed positive or given that 
well, I would say we now know the evidence from Sweden, which is continuing to be outside of the general consensus, and the evidence from our, our own modelling is that the United Kingdom's initial approach to fighting this pandemic was wrong. To quote something else Mark Drake would said to me about well, yeah, how one of the things he likes about the, uh, having a PR electoral system is you have the internal challenge of not just having to win votes on the floor of the assembly, but having to convince Kirsty Williams, the Liberal Democrat Education Secretary, that they are good ideas as well, and he thinks mm. that's very healthy. But we didn't have that internal, well, clearly there was not that internal challenge of the approach the UK as a whole chose to take. Is that sign of devolution working well or badly? I kind of think both. I think another interesting point is what this means for the future of regional devolution. Obviously, Andy Burner's powers to to diverge wi- uh, widely from the UK wide, um, the UK wide, you know, lockdown model is non-existent. But in terms of the devolution of health and social care, a uh, very angry-looking Joe Anderson, who is an elected leader of a council rather than a metro mayor, is staring back at me on a Liverpool Echo article complaining about waiting for for personal protective equipment for hospitals in Liverpool. So I, I wonder whether actually we will, you know, start talking more seriously about the devolution of health and social care after once if the dust settles on this and, and whether there'll be a sort of new assertiveness from from even you know from regional regional leaders i think that's a really good yeah, point I mean, and that's something that i came across when i was writing about the move to house all rough sleepers across the country in the space of a weekend and you did see you know andy burnham and, and joe anderson and other leaders of of councils in the region's doing their best and doing these impressive drives to find rooms um, across their cities for the people who were sleeping rough, but also saying, you know, (laughs) councils don't have that housing capacity and they also don't have the capacity for ongoing care and provision for the people who are going to be housed in hotels and all sorts of random bits of accommodation that have been eked out in these cities. And that's a result of of the austerity that they've, they've suffered for, for a decade. And so I think you're right. I think it's going to really highlight the regional differences in healthcare provision, but also other provision like like housing, for example. Perhaps once this crisis is slightly more under control, people will realise the regional dis- differences and, and, and inequalities. So our next question is from Thomas Hall. Hi team. I was just wondering what you, you think the impact will be of, of this coronavirus on the kind of processes and routines in Parliament. So I know it's early, but if this goes on, do you think we're going to see more kind of options to work remotely or different approaches for press or parliamentarians? I think this is a really interesting question because you've seen the SNP MP for Edinburgh Southwest, Joanna Cherry, has been calling for remote working for Parliament and using digital platforms to scrutinise Parliament. And of course, this kind of working would really benefit MPs like her who represent places that are far away from London. Um, And actually, in February, there was a Highlands MSP who quit Holyrood and she was saying she'd been asking if she could, you know, do video conferences and remote voting instead of instead of having to travel to Edinburgh all the time, you know, every day away from her constituency. So I do think that there this is an opportunity for for MPs and MSPs and and other representatives to champion that kind of modernisation of the workplace that that many of them are desperate for. And actually, Chion Wura has been championing a a digital parliament she sent a letter to the clerk of the house of commons sort of calling for this kind of digitization of parliamentary work and select committees will be holding hearings remotely you know we, we might even see mps asking questions in pmqs remotely and departmental questions and urgent questions in the commons as well but 
that's the big question there is is whether or not that will just be for the coronavirus period alone or whether it, that kind of working could stay in place beyond this crisis and i think if it's proved to work well the argument for for taking it back to the archaic system where you actually physically have to be there to vote and ask questions during pmqs for example that argument will be weakened particularly in light of the fact that you know it's much more family friendly for MPs to be able to work remotely and vote remotely. So yeah, the the interesting thing I I, I agree I agree with all um, of that, and I think that the case for uh, you know digitising Parliament will be stronger be, be, precisely because it, it will have been tried. But I sort of think any move to digital voting, which the SNP have always lobbied for be that in the chamber as they have it in Holyrood, regardless of whether you can do it from outside, just being able to sit in the chamber with your little clicker and, and say, I, and the, you know, the result, you know, the result of the division in five seconds. I think that given you have, well, for now, at least on the Tory side, but certainly on the Labour side now, two very powerful leaderships, I think there'll be an increased incentive for MPs to take the chance of lobbying shadow cabinet ministers who will naturally now occupy uh, cabinet ministers and shadow cabinet ministers now and the leadership will naturally occupy on both sides a slightly more rarefied position because of the strength both of the Tories majority and also because of the mandate Keir Starmer has won it's going to be a much more command and control leadership it won't be a free-for-all and there won't be many alternative well there won't be an alternative power base in the PLP anymore because Keir Starmer has won a mandate from a majority of MPs and a, a, a big mandate from the membership so actually the incentive to get Keir Starmer or Annalise Dodds in the division lobby and talk to her about um your local roundabout is perversely, despite the imperative for social distancing that we're all observing now, going to be much higher. I think it will erode a lot of the kind of you know, I would, things that I would describe as pointless and things that, yeah, I mean, ironically, Lindsay Hoyle having ran as a, you know, I'm going to return to normality, I'm going to wear the, the wig at set piece occasions, is going to end up having being a even more radical speaker than. John Burko, and also I suspect actually when the inquiry comes out, I think he will be one of the people who does quite badly because at the point when the government has started to lock down, at the point when Whitehall was observing social distancing, common staff were still being made to come in, and now a bunch of ministers and MPs are sick. I find it hard to see how the yeah, I think the government will come out very badly of other bits of the inquiry, but I don't think the parliamentary authority is going to be able to escape the fact when they kind of went, we've been here for a thousand years and we, we didn't shut down for the plague, we'll shut down for this. But I think a lot of the face-to-face stuff, like select committee stuff, will come back, partly because one of the things that lots of MPs are complaining about to me is not they say, well, look, the difficult thing is, is now you can't tell if someone's lying. Yeah, if someone pauses and you think, oh, I should probably probe that, you're just like, is that a bad line? Is that a tell? And so I think there won't be as much remote working, but I think a lot of the kind of archaic stuff will fall away. You know, when you speak to MPs who represent the more rural, remote areas during this time, I don't know whether you found this, but a lot of them have been, because I've been saying, oh, it must be so difficult to do your work. You can't go and, you know, visit all the local businesses and you can't travel and et cetera, et cetera. But they often say, well, it's been amazing how much you can pick up what the concerns are and what the pinch points are from your constituents when you when you just do a ring round all day. We often do when we go on the road. If you've been round with a remote constituency MP for a day, you notice how much time they spend traveling and how you know little opportunity they get to, to meet everyone 
in their constituency or or in the all the different parts of their constituency as well particularly in places where the roads they don't have main roads for example okay so the next question will be from sally etchells hi there so as a result of the coronavirus act that was recently passed some sort of public services have been sort of eroded so I work for a children's charity and, you know, we support children with special educational needs and disabilities. And some of the laws that protect vulnerable people have been paused or sort of eroded a bit um, with this Coronavirus Act. And I know that's happened with other public services as well. So my question was, do you think that everything will just kind of return in full after all this is over? Or do you think that actually this could be a bit of a turning point and some of these services will be kind of weakened permanently? I think that's a really interesting question, precisely because it could go one of two ways. Yes, I think a lot of people on the left who are now, or who were, who greeted Rishi Sunak's first bailout package with, this is brilliant, all our Christmases have come at once, need to think about the flip side, which is that, as you say, there has been a degree of deregulation, particularly on the things you mentioned about safeguarding, but also regulation of of all 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 manner of things especially you know in business and whatever that actually people like mark littlewood from the institute of economic affairs and and the free marketeers are celebrating this as a great opportunity so i think there is a danger of complacency certainly certainly on the left and you know winning the peace on this isn't inevitable a precedent has been set in both directions as you say and who knows which way the cards will fall so yeah i think because because the odd thing is i think then there are some obvious benefits from a sort of left-wing perspective in that yeah obviously we can conceive of how homelessness has been allowed to rise through a long period of, of neglect and, and cuts to local authorities but i think then it's one thing to let that happen due to neglect over a decade it's quite another to click your fingers and go and tomorrow we will evict every rough sleeper from the hilton metropole right so i think that that will be the one unalloyed positive. I just can't conceive of how the, a government would be able to politically weather the Secretary of State snapping his fingers and rough sleepers returning to the streets. But the flip side of that, as you say, is that Rishi Sunak is still an orthodox, you know, he's you know, a huge, huge mind, but he's still an orthodox conservative in many ways. Right. He, his solution at the end of this is not going to be to go, oh, it turns out borrowing doesn't matter. It is going to be further rounds of austerity, both probably in terms of tax rises, but they will try and find some things to cut. And I think all of the services that have kind of fallen away will be particularly acute. And I think as well as that, there's going to, we've got a real sort of battle on our hands on the kind of left, you know, not just in the opposition parties, but all of us who are kind of like left wing in any sense to really highlight the fact that we already know that the long summer holidays are essentially like the most effective bit of class war in, in in global social policy, right? And then children from less privileged backgrounds regress over the six weeks and their families have huge financial pressures. And we're essentially going to have a prolonged version of that. And the, the way that we restart the academic calendar afterwards will ultimately have big implications for all of those social justice things. So yeah, it's a real concern and something we should be really alive to. Yeah, I'm also concerned, um, mainly because although the volunteering efforts in this country have been really moving and, you know, on a spectacular scale and the way that people are working, you know, in local communities with each other. In fact, it's not just it's not just unique to the UK, but those volunteering efforts are are really impressive. But also, you know, we've had those volunteering efforts in place for a while now. So the, the rise of food banks, for example, 
and the more that you can demonstrate that people will step in when people at their low, are at their lowest ebb, the more of an argument you can make for, for the big society, which worries me in terms of um, services that, like Stephen mentioned that will be crying out for funding at the end of this crisis and may not get it and in fact may suffer another round of cuts. Okay, I think we've got time for one more question from Nathan Baroda. Hiya. What clues, if any, does the composition of a new shadow cabinet give us about what Labour's next manifesto will look like? It's a really good, it's a really good question. I am going to give the copper answer. It's too early to tell. I think it tells us much more about the strategic direction and tone of Starmer's leadership thus far, which is, as he said, you know, constructive opposition, you know, more robust on on welfare and whatever, forensic parliamentary opposition. Obviously, that will inform whatever the manifesto looks like in 2024. But even if we weren't in the midst of a global pandemic that had temporarily upended the rules of political economy in this country, I'd, I'd still say it was too early to tell, I think, anyway. So one of the interesting golden threads, which is a horrible cliche I need to stop using, one of the interesting golden threads in this shadow cabinet is that there are a lot of people who are UBI curious. Johnny Reynolds, who's obviously appeared on the New Statesman podcast, is, is a big advocate for UBI. Rachel Reeves has, has sort of flirted with it. And uh, Ed Miliband has sort of talked about it as a possible solution too. And in terms of the ideological breadth of this shadow cabinet, that is essentially almost all of it, right? With the exception of the kind of handful of people around kind of surviving Corbynites or Long Baileyites or whatever you want to call them, who bluntly, to be honest, I suspect will probably go the way of all flesh in subsequent reshuffles. I, I think that's quite interesting, not least because one of the things that Keir Starmer is acutely aware of, because I think anyone who cares about policy is acutely aware of this is Labour's last two welfare secretaries were not particularly effective and their welfare secretaries under Ed had a brief from the leadership to neutralise George Osborne's welfare dividing lines and politically that's not, Keir does not want to emulate the Miliband era approach but he also from a policy perspective doesn't want to have kind of like four years of basic incoherence followed by you know kind of 11th hour by the way will essentially keep universal credit. I think it's interesting that almost everyone who will be a stakeholder, as it were, on that, actually also including the new chief, shadow chief secretary of the Treasury, Bridget Phillipson, who wrote a very good piece for us and I urge everyone to read, going, look, yes, food poverty is, you know, these kind of, you know, period poverty is important, but actually the freedom to be undeserving, to have a takeaway because you feel like you've had a hard day, is a really important aspect of poverty that the left should care about too. So I suspect that there'll be an interesting, quite universalist, solution on welfare i might be wrong but that would be looking at all of the politics of the people on it who will be remotely involved and be stakeholders in that that would be where i'd put it and of course there are a lot of labor co-op people in it so you kind of assume that it will be a bit mutualism heavy as well that point about universal basic income is an interesting one because it sort of depends on how universal credit handles the rise in unemployment and the rise in people claiming benefits because of what the country is going through at the moment it depends on how universal credit handles that and so far you know we've seen a huge rise in people claiming it not all of them will will be completely out of work but they will have had a loss of earnings or they will have had a change in contract which means that they they, they need to apply for benefits or they've fallen through one of the government's emergency schemes for getting money to workers who who can no longer earn in this period we've seen a huge rise in the number of people claiming it and that means a lot more people are coming into contact with a system 
that since its very beginning has been wrought with problems, administrative quirks and faults, but also ideological, complete obstacles to people, for people who are trying to depend on the state, at least for some of their income. And so I think there's going to be a long tail, a long legacy from a lot of people signing onto universal credit at the same time. And I think it will show its flaws in an even starker light to people who have a louder voice and more sort of social and cultural cachet than the people who have so far been depending on universal credit. And that could actually really bolster the argument for something more universal than universal credit, which actually isn't very universal. An idea of welfare that doesn't depend so much on the constraints and the the quirks and the hurdles that universal credit requires of its claimants at the moment. So there could be more of a broader political will for that kind of policy that, like you say, a shadow cabinet of this makeup could exploit. Yeah, it's often said that as the caveat, as the as the rejoinder to the Johnny Reynolds like UBI case and sort of other shadow cabinet ministers that Claire Ainsley, the head honcho of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, who is likely to be Starmer's head of policy, is anti-UBI. But as you say, Anoush, if anything's gonna make UBI skeptics reassess their view of the welfare system and the contributory system and whether that is, you know, an unshakable aspect of their vision for a welfare system is this economic crisis. So we'll see. And also what coronavirus has has exposed as well is how is the changing labour market as well. Mm. The fact that it took the Conservative government so long to pick up on the fact that self-employed people, you know, in their millions were left out from their job retention scheme and their other plans to try and help people financially shows that they're sort of on the back foot in terms of the way that people work now in the gig economy with casual contracts, etc. And that's only going to increase. And so, you know, again, that bolsters the argument for something like UBI. Yeah, and I think, and I say this as someone who, you know, is sufficiently anti-flying, that one of the many things I like about Annalise Dodds is in 2010, she said that we should ban it within the UK, other than, of course, to, to get to, to Northern Ireland. But the, the underlying assumption, right, isn't there will be more pandemics in the future. We may have to have similar periods of economic sheltering. And the uh, and I say this as someone who still is a UBI skeptic. I, I definitely am open. It's definitely making me think I need to revisit, which will mean a very long and self-indulgent wonkish blog in a couple of days. I need to revisit some of those questions about whether or not, if we are going to have periods in which we all have to go inside and hide from a new lurgy, do you need a benefit system which connects everyone rather than one where during a period of crisis, as well as the government having to like you know, deal with new diseases, it's also going, I'm afraid the DWP's website's fallen over again. And so, yeah, I think, as Patrick says, but only time will tell. But speaking of time telling, we've reached the end of our time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.